0: This sermon was uploaded by Grace Community Church in San Antonio, Texas, and our website is www.gccsatx.com, or you can find us on Sermon Audio by going to www.sermonaudio.com/gcc. Romans, chapter nine. Verse ten Romans chapter nine. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born, who wasn't born? The twins that were in Rebekah's womb. They were conceived, but they weren't yet born. We're talking Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing. Now, notice that. They had done, they weren't born, they had done nothing either good or bad but in order that God's purpose of election might stand. Now, I know if you've got the ESV, it says continue. Every other translation uses the word stand. The word could be translated continue. I don't believe it's the best, and I'm not going to say it anymore. In my Bible, I wrote stand in. That's the way I'm going to read it. I think it's the best word. What he is saying here is... That these two children were yet in their mother's womb, not having done good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might hold firm. It might stand. It might be proven. It might be shown. Not because of works. What's not because of works? but because of his call. What's not because of works, but because of his call? Well, where he's getting to that. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older, that's Esau, will serve the younger. Now that's not typically the way that it works. Typically, the older does not serve the younger. The younger serves the older. But it was reversed. And it was done so because God said it would be so. She, Rebecca, was told. And who was she told that by? The Lord told her that. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, He, that's God, has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. My sermon this morning is going to come at you in three parts. The first part will be an examination of of the meaning of Romans 9.13. Look, the whole sermon has to do with Romans 9.13. First part, we're going to examine the meaning of Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The second part of this sermon will be a word to those of you who do not like this verse. Verse. And the third part will deal with what Romans 9.13 teaches us about the character of God. So here we go. Part 1. Let's first examine Romans 9.13. Everybody look at it. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This verse is a quote from Malachi chapter one, verses two and three. And you know what? There in Malachi, we're told that this is the word of the Lord. God is speaking this. The I in Romans nine thirteen, Jacob I loved. The I is the Lord God Almighty. That's exactly who being talking about. If we really think about it, this verse does not have so much to do with Jacob and Esau as it does with God. You know what? Paul gives us this not so much to even think about Jacob and Esau as much as it forces us face to face with the God of the Bible. What a statement for God to make! I mean, let, are, are, you, are you guys all getting this? I, I'm thinking some of you have never even heard this before. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, and what do you say about such a verse? It's, it's wonderful. It's fearful. It's powerful. It's certain. Is it not? It's God being God. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here is God exercising what we call his divine prerogative freely and graciously god moves among men and he pours his affections of love on one man while just as freely and let me add this fairly withholds that same love from another man what absolute, unrestrained, sovereign freedom God has as He rules over men and angels and demons and the entire universe. You know what? Just as freely could God have said, Esau I loved, but Jacob I hated. Just as freely. All the rights are His. All dominion is His. All authority is His. Priority is His. All power is His. Jacob and Esau and you and me. You know what? We exist. For him. We exist by him. And remember this, we exist under him. We are not the centers of reality. We are not on some great giant pedestal looking down at him. Creation doesn't just revolve around us. No, friend. He alone is the burning center of reality. He alone. The high and lofty One who inhabits eternity. You know what? We have to get a grip on this reality. This is the God of the Bible. This is the way of the God of the Bible speaks. He says things like, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I'm telling you this, folks. People don't see God like this. We've got. To, this is the real God. We've got to come to some reality, some Mental, I mean, we've, I, we've just got to get this. If, if you would have came to me when I was lost, if you would have came to me 20 years ago and said, do you think this is even in the Bible that God would say something like this? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I would say, no, it's not in the Bible. You know why I would have thought that? For the same reason some of you might might have thought that before you just heard it. Or you did at one time think it. It's because we don't like it. There's something in it that doesn't resonate with us. It doesn't doesn't really go along with our concept of who God is. But you know the amazing thing about Scripture? It doesn't hold back when it wants to teach us about God. What we've got to do, folks, is come to the place where we are not trying to instill our concept of God on the Bible. But let the Bible speak to us and show us who God is. What we've got to do is is realize God is in control. It is He and He alone who issues the sovereign decrees of love and hate. He determines the objects of His love and the objects of His hate. He's never sought our counsel on the matter. Not yours nor mine. Our place is not to argue. It's not to find fault. You know what our place is? It's to bow down at His feet And if I'm a Christian, it's to bow down and take complete rest in the fact that His sovereign decree of love for me makes me absolutely, unshakably secure in Jesus Christ. Okay. Let's be really straight with each other. I don't want any of us playing games or being dishonest with this verse. When God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, He is saying, now mark this very well, He is saying, I love Jacob for no other reason than that I loved Jacob. There's no other reason you can find Jacob didn't earn God's love? It was not because Jacob would someday believe. And God looked down and saw, ah, he's going to believe. I think I'll pick him. It's not that way. It's not because he would believe. It's not because Jacob would be good or do good or act right or do anything that would make God more inclined to love him. God loves one and not another precisely because it pleases God to do so. When God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, He is saying, the choice is mine. No one takes it from me. No one helps me make it. I love who I want to love, and I withhold my love from those I determine to withhold that love from. This verse teaches us that God is Absolutely in control of who's saved, who's not saved. Those He determines to love will be loved. Those He determines not to love will not be loved. That's what Romans 9.13 is teaching. I want to quickly prove that to you, because some of you are saying, yeah, but I've heard before, it's God chosen because He saw that He would believe. And it's nice that you just say it doesn't mean that, but I think it does mean that. I think that's exactly why God chose them. Some of you may be sitting there right now, and you may be thinking that. You may be saying that to yourself. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to prove to you that that is not the case. That's the whole first part, first section of this sermon. I'm going to prove it. And so I'm going to prove it in these verses that are right immediately in the context. First one, verse 11, look at it. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call. You know what? Lots of people insist. God does choose the people He's going to love. But it's because He saw something in them. He saw something they would do. He saw that they would believe. Or something else. I've actually had somebody tell me before as well, well, God didn't love. He hated Esau because of something God saw that Esau would do. Uh, nope, guys. That doesn't work. Let me ask you a simple question. Is there anything said in verse 11 that would lead us to believe that God loved Jacob because He foresaw that Jacob would believe? Not a word of it. Paul is saying precisely the opposite. He's saying that God chose to love Jacob and hate Esau before they had done Any good or bad. Why would he say that? In order to emphasize that good and bad don't ever even enter the equation. Faith. Now think with me. Would not faith in Jacob be a good thing? It would. But Paul is saying that good things and bad things, they don't even get noticed whatsoever from God when it comes to choosing whom He'll love. The reason God doesn't give regard to any of those things is why? so that his own purpose of election might stand. Paul's whole point here is that if God chooses because of anything He sees and knows about a person, then God's free purposes of election don't stand anymore. There's your first proof, verse 11. Second proof, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, now think with me here. Think about this. When Paul asks, is there injustice on God's part? What is he implying? He's implying he just said something that sounds like God might be unjust. Right? And what did he just say? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. If Paul had said that God chooses to love only the people that he looks down through time and sees will believe, if that's what Paul is teaching here, then the question in verse 14 wouldn't even arise. Right? If that's what Paul's teaching here, you don't get that question because nobody's going to object to that. That's what everybody likes. No, what brings up the question is there injustice with God? As if Paul has just been teaching us that God loves Jacob and hates Esau absolutely and totally without respect to anything whatsoever that is true or not true about Jacob and Esau. Look, it's only when people begin to feel in their hearts and minds that they don't like this, something's not fair there. I mean, if, he's just, if he just chooses one and, doesn't, and passes over another one, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with anything they ever do, anything they ever believe, that's when people start saying, wait, that's not fair. He's not dealing with both men on the same platform. That's when the charge... You know what? We're right on track, folks. You can tell by that question that that's exactly what Paul's saying. But, God is not being unfair. Now we'll get to that. We'll show you why He's not. But the fact is, only if Paul is speaking absolute unconditional election, no condition needs to be fulfilled by the men themselves, do you get people wondering if there's fairness involved. That's the only time. Verse 15. Let's go to a third proof. We move to that one. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here Paul reminds us of something God told Moses in Exodus 33.19. You know what? After I just read that one, do I really even need to say more? It jumps right off the page and grabs us. You know what? The Lord saved me. 18 years ago. If one of you asked God, you were able to find Him and and stand face to face with Him and ask Him why He did that. You know what He could tell you? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And you know what? That answer isn't meant to make you start looking for something special in me. That coerced him and twisted his arm to choose me. That answer is not meant to get you looking at me at all. It's meant to grip you with the absolute freedom of God to choose to have mercy on whomever he desires. Next proof, verse 16. It's like if you aren't getting this, Paul just keeps coming back at you with one thing after another. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, Let me ask you this. What's the it there in that verse? So then, it depends not on human will. The it would be election. I think somebody said it. Or the choosing. The choice of Jacob over Esau Does not depend on, notice this, it does not depend on any act of the human will of Jacob or Esau. The choice depends on God who has mercy. If it had to do with some future faith that Jacob would have, then it would depend on human will. Right? No man ever believed against his will. Every man that has trusted Jesus Christ has willingly done so. It is an exercise of the will to trust Christ. God doesn't drag people to heaven unwillingly. Men are made willing. The will is involved. And what that text right there says is do not think about any exercise of the will of man when you think about why God chooses one over another. It only has to do with His mercy. He shows mercy on one And he is very fair and very just and very much in the right to pass over showing mercy on another. And you just remember this. It's mercy that he shows. We heard about it in the Sunday school, did we not? Mercy. Mercy always has to do with misery. Both men were in misery. Look, the love that was shown to Jacob was a mercy It means he was in misery. Why was he in misery? Because he was a sinner. Just like Esau. Let me tell you something. When God shows mercy on one and passes over showing mercy on the other and gives that other what is due him and fair to him, God is not being unjust. It's just like if somebody walks in here and of all the people in here, they go over and they give a gift to that one lady. They're free to bestow their mercy on whomever they want to bestow it. And we can't find fault with that. We can't say that that person is unjust because only Ann Vangie got the gift. You see, we're, we're in the same ballpark here. If God looks at two men, both sinners, both miserable, and decides to spare the one from misery and show compassion and deliver them, have mercy there, we cannot find fault with God for passing over the other one. But this is entirely God's free choice. This is what Paul is teaching us here. I'll give you one more proof. Verse 18. If you're really not convinced yet, Paul hits you with just one more staggering statement. So then, Romans 9.18, so then He has mercy on whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. Now think with me. People want to imagine that God chose, they wrongly imagine God chose to love Jacob because He saw that Jacob would believe. But you know what? They also suppose (coughs) that God chose to hate Esau because He saw that Esau would not believe. Verse 18 does not portray God as idly watching to see what Esau would do. This verse shows God taking the initiative and actually hardening whomever He wills. You say that's fearful. Yes, it is. When you hear Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, it's supposed to make you fear and admire and worship. It's meant to make you fall on your face and say, with old Nebuchadnezzar, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? Nobody can question Him. That's what these verses are meant to make happen to us. As a church, to be filled... I mean, just... Lord, I'm chosen. Why? Why? For nothing in me. Thank You, Lord. No boasting in us. Thank You, Lord. I have no place to boast. Why me? Why? Who can answer that? Why? When thousands perish, when millions refuse to come, Why? This verse is not meant to aggravate or perplex the sons of men. It's meant to produce worship. Second part of my message. A word to those who dislike this teaching. We need to stop right here. And I need to deal with you on a personal level. Because I don't doubt there are some of you here that you don't like this. This is part of Paul's most glorious Gospel presentation in our entire New Testament. The book of Romans. Unconditional election is part of that Gospel. But I suspect this doesn't sound like good news to some of you. You hear, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And some deep dread just overshadows, secretly, you wish these verses were not in the Bible. Now, I want you to be honest with yourself. We all need to be honest about this. If you don't like this, you need to admit that your problem is not with me your problem is not with this church simply put and you've got i, I mean i want you to I, i'm not saying this to condemn you i'm saying this because i want you to really get a grip and come clean and be honest because i believe that is your that is your path to to getting right with god that's your path to salvation Honesty is always the way you want to deal with God. Your problem is that you are not satisfied with God. You're opposed to Him. There lies your whole difficulty. What Romans 9.13 does is it begins to introduce the true God of the Bible into view before your eyes. You dislike the doctrine for the very fact that your heart dislikes the way that doctrine presents God. You cannot try to make God fit into your mold. The fact is, if you were truly reconciled to God, you would be reconciled to election. Here's a testimony of one woman. She came to a pastor back in the 1800s. But her testimony is recorded and I thought it would be fitting right here. She says this, All my life I've been troubled with the doctrine of election. I have studied it for more than 20 years in vain. But now, I know what has been the matter. I've never been entirely willing that God should be God. Now, election troubles me no longer. Many of you probably are familiar with a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards and some of you probably have read this quote before, but it's worth repeating here. This is what he says, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom He would to eternal life and rejecting whom He pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God I've often since that first conviction had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I've often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. Listen to me. If you are struggling with God loving Jacob and hating Esau, I want you to hear something Jesus said. And there are other verses that are very similar to this that I could have resorted to. But listen to this. John 7.17 If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. Listen to me. Did you all hear that? Did you catch that? Jesus says that if your will is inclined to do God's will, then you will know whether a teaching is from God or not. The way to learn truth, the way to know, the path to understanding is not to be found simply in your intellectual musings. It lies in obeying what you already know to be the will of God. Typically, the problem with those who dislike the doctrine of unconditional election the problem with those who dislike God freely choosing Jacob and hating Esau is that they are the very people who are not committed to doing God's will. My friend, the real issue is that you need to surrender. Psalm 25.9 says, The Lord leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Knowing truth has far more to do than just your intellect. It involves your will, your conscience, your heart, it involves your pride. If you're struggling, you know what? I suspect there are deeper issues. You're not letting go of something. You have not fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. You can be certain that's at the root. The problem lies in the rebellion of men. They will not renounce the world. They will not put away their self-righteousness. They will not be saved by Christ alone. They will not forsake everything to have Christ they will not repent of sin. They are not entirely and only satisfied to be saved from condemnation of God by the merits of Jesus Christ. And because they are not, God has not let them out of the perplexity they find themselves in. And it's not just the doctrine of unconditional election, it's other things. You find people who struggle. It doesn't matter if they're intellectual, it doesn't matter if their high cue goes out of the ceiling they will almost certainly struggle with God's truths. They won't love God's Word. They'll try to explain things based on men's philosophies, men's ways, men's speaking, men's ideas. Why? Because the things of God are foreign. And when they go there, oh, they love to quote this guy and that guy. But they don't quote Scripture very often. They don't quote Christ. They don't quote the Apostle Paul. Why? Because when they go there, there's a perplexity. And the problem has to do with their will. God holds them in that perplexity. Listen, your will is a big deal when it comes to your learning and to your knowing and to your striving to to understand these things. How often men testify to the fact that they hate the doctrine of election. But once they surrender and they freely set all their hopes in Jesus Christ, all the clouds and all the perplexity just blow away. And they are thankful to have God be the God of the Scriptures to have God be what He shows Himself to be, absolutely sovereign in election, absolutely sovereign to do as He pleases among men and in all the universe. Well, quickly, the third part. What does Romans 9.13 teach us about God? I don't know if I'm going to get all the way through this, but I'll tell you some of the things. Romans 9.13. You know, the, the thing is, God's glory just shines from this verse. If God will only give us eyes to see it. There's, there, as I contemplated this, I, I mean excellent manifestations of His glory are there to be seen and to be had if you will devote yourself to this. Here's the first thing that this shows us about God's character. Jacob I love. But Esau I hated. One thing that will strike you, and I think it will, maybe more right now, as I point this out to you, that you, you may not see at first, is the fact that God is God-centered. And you may wonder, how does he get that? I mean, that sounds like something Piper would say. He must have got it No, I I really didn't. I mean, it just as I was looking at the verses, I mean, yeah, he coined that phrase, and it's good to use here. And so maybe in that sense I borrowed it. But you may wonder, well, where did I get it? I actually got that from the text, folks. Look at this. Look at the verse Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. You know what? God wants us to know what He did. You know what? Jacob and Esau aren't really even the issue. You know how I know that? By the time I get to verse 15, Jacob and Esau are gone. No more needs to be said about them. You know why? They're not the focal point. They're not the big issue. God says, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's like the Lord speaking to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, and so we God may say the same thing to us with regards to salvation. where were you when I laid the foundations of saving love. Where were you when I laid my purposes of love and hatred? Where were you when I formed my eternal counsels of mercy in Christ? And you know what? We do well to bow down and say with Job, I laid my hand on my mouth. Lord, I, I wasn't there. When Jacob and Esau first entered God's mind, Far past dawn of eternity. Where were we? But you know what? We need to stop right here. Because I I need to ask you this question. Are you God-centered? Are you like God in God-centeredness? Or are you man-centered like this fallen world? I'll tell you this. Romans 9.13 will test every one of you. You want to test? I mean, here's, this is the perfect test. You guys, can, you guys, those of you that go out there down to the Alamo, you can take this with you, and I'll guarantee you this, the test works every time. You tell people what God says in Romans 9.13, it will test a man right there on the spot as to whether he is God-centered or man-centered. You know what? In our society, you know what we find? This fallen world out here, it is absolutely not God-centered. You say, how do you know that? Look at your television. Look at the billboards. Look at the newspapers. Where's God? And anytime time God is brought up, that He's made to be this spongy little soft Easter bunny deal. It doesn't threaten anybody. He's rarely spoken of, and when He is, it's such distorted backwards views. God is not central to this world out here. The society imagines that the greatest, most focal thing of all is man's well-being. It's man's happiness. That's what they think is the big deal. That's the foundation upon which this whole American system around us functions. The first and foremost matter of importance is that people are happy. And when people... People with that man-centered attitude hear words like, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What's the very first thing they recoil at? What is it that repulses and repels them? It's not, Oh! Wow! How in the world could a miserable wretch like Jacob possibly find favor from a holy God? That just staggers me. Is that what they say? That doesn't even enter their mind. You know what? The fact that God loved a sinner, they expect it. That's not what troubles them. Now that is what ought to trouble them if they really understood things the way they really are. But that doesn't trouble them at all. What troubles them? The man who in Hebrews twelve sixteen, is called an unholy man. A man who was wicked. God just didn't hate Esau. Esau hated God. A God-hating, rebel, wicked, sinner like Esau. And the world recoils and just can't understand how could God ever do that to him? I'll tell you what, Romans 9.13 just shreds man-centered perspective. Just rocks them to the core. He hated Esau. How can that be? Here I am at campus the other day. Now those of you that were there with me, you'll know this guy This guy was a little bit off. I don't know his whole deal. But he walks up, you could tell he had a huge attitude. I tried to give him a washer DVD, and he just he wanted nothing to do with it. But I saw him kind of migrate over. One of the guys brought a stack of, of tracks on hell. And he, tried, he tended to migrate over there, and he was looking at it. And I, I, I didn't know who wrote that one. There was one by Nichols called The Terrors of Hell that was down a little ways from there. And I pointed I said, well, if you're interested in that, you, you might want to read this one right here. And he looked at me and he said, come on, don't, he said something along the lines of this. Don't, don't you think that all that talk about hell in the Bible and weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness, it's that, all kind of like a parable. A loving God isn't going to put people in a place like that, right? I don't remember my exact answer to him, but I said something along the order of, God puts the evildoers He hates in hell. He said it. Walked off all disgusted. I'll tell you something. That this verse teaches us. God does hate. But I'll tell you this. Psalm 5.5 5 says God hates all evildoers. Let me ask you something. What's the only evil thing in this universe? sin. Nothing else is evil. Although those that do the sin, but sin is the only evil in this universe. Let me ask you this, how many times then do you figure you have to sin before you're an evil doer? How many sins do you have to do to be an evil doer if every sin is evil. Like maybe one. God hates them. When we look at Romans 9, I guarantee you the angels are not in heaven perplexed as to how God could hate Esau. The things they desire to look into, the things they cannot comprehend, Things they are just trying to peer at, they're just trying to get a grasp on. How did an evil doer like Jacob become an object of God's eternal love? How can that be? How can God have mercy upon whom he'll have mercy? It's not how can he pass over? How can he have mercy upon anybody? How could this God who is so holy and of pure eyes than like to look upon this, this iniquity, this wickedness, how could a God like that, how could it be when men have raised their fist and shaken it at God? This is what staggers. thing that we see is not only that God hates this the the character you see here is that God is God centered we see in this that God hates we see in this that God loves and not just loves people who are worthy of his love let me tell you something about God's hatred it is not like man's it is not this sinful dark thing his hatred is pure it is pristine it is absolutely in accord with his righteous holy character God only hates what is hate worthy and what just blows the minds of the angels is that here is a hate worthy thing you and me Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. And they're going to be gathered together with a whole bunch of other hate-worthy vessels to sit around a table one day. And the Lord Himself is going to come and gird Himself and serve us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That which is foul and putrid and hate-worthy and disgusting and abominable and detestable is made the Bride of the Lamb. That's what just blows the angelic mind. How can this be? We know God is sovereign. We know He does what He wants. But how He could do this and send His own Son to shed His blood in behalf of these people? How can that be? What this does is it just it, I'll tell you something else that's in the character of God. It is very much the character of God to humble men. If there is nothing to humble you, look at the cross. That is... It, it, this whole doctrine of sovereignty, this whole idea that God ordained a way of salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ made possible by His sufferings there. This whole thing, the way God ordains the whole way of salvation, the way He ordains men and women to be saved and ordains the means by which they would be saved by looking to the pierced Son of God crushed under the wrath. And then to think that we have part and not because... I figured this out, not because I decreed it, not because I ordained it. Oh, folks, Spurgeon, I came across this quote and I think it's a very valid one to end with. He says, I know nothing, nothing again, that is more humbling for us than this doctrine of election. I've sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand it. I've stretched my wings. And eagle-like, I've soared towards the sun. Steady had been my eye and true my wing for a season. But when I came near it, and the one thought possessed me, God has from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. I was lost in its luster. I was staggered with the mighty thought. And from the dizzy elevation, down came my soul, prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Why me? Why?